Hello, and welcome to It's Complicated, a podcast about healthcare ethics and practice presented by the Nova Scotia Health Ethics Network, or NSHEN. I'm Marika Warren, network ethicist for NSHEN, and I'll be your host for this discussion. This podcast is currently a time-limited trial to see if we can make our resources more accessible in audio format, and we welcome any feedback you might have on this endeavor. I'm joined today by Randy Monroe, who is the Director of Rehabilitation and Supportive Care with Nova Scotia Health. Recently, Randy was involved in the design of Nova Scotia Health's care strategy for patients with long COVID, which involved extensive collaboration with patient partners, and we're going to spend some time today talking about that experience. So maybe to start us off, Randy, you can give us just a quick overview of the process of developing the strategy and how patient partners were involved. Sure thing. Happy to be here. I guess it would have been late last spring. Um, we were starting to recognize in our patients that people who had, had COVID were still experiencing lots of symptoms. And certainly in the literature, in the news, we knew people were uh, experiencing a, a lot of symptoms and we really didn't know how to help them. So we quickly uh, formed Nova Scotia Health uh, Steering Committee, which actually had a variety of stakeholders from along the continuum of care. So for example, I represented the rehabilitation component of, of the continuum of care. There was primary health care, we had acute care, we had physicians who were treating COVID, we had interprofessional practice and learning. Uh, we wanted to collect data because we, we needed numbers, like how many people had had COVID, uh, where were they all located. So we had you know, performance and analytics, and we also had uh, research, innovation, and discovery doing lit researches to find out what was cutting edge, what was happening, how were people organizing these services. So uh, we quickly formed a virtual at that time, and we were all virtual. So we virtually met, and we knew the need was great. So we, we were really feeling it was a rapid cycle approach. It was a very collaborative approach. And I think very early on, we quickly recognized nobody in our group had, had experienced COVID or you know what we call long COVID. We call it post-COVID. So we quickly identified, I, I would say after the second meeting, we needed to have patient family advisors involved. And uh, we all had a piece of the continuum of care. We'd all had had conversations with patients who had come to us and expressed concern about the lack of resources and um, their concerns about getting better. They wanted um, help. We had two, two or three volunteers uh, that came on board really quickly. And one has been with us for the last year. She's just stepped down about a month ago. So she's been with us from the development, implementation, execution, um, follow-up, has been absolutely critical in the formation of our um, strategy. In terms of the strategy, uh, I think, it, again, I, I can't highlight enough that it was a collaborative and, and, and really we were experts from our own areas, but we were not experts in COVID. And I think really the patient family advisors really brought that perspective of why we were doing this work, what was needed, and how we design it and tailor it so that it actually meets the needs. Nobody wants to, we're all committed to creating a system that works. So none of us want to create a system that isn't going to work for people who have COVID. And we do know that a lot of people with long COVID have so many, a variety of different symptoms. And so we needed to make sure that we were developing strategies um, that A, were receptive, and uh, B, kind of worked and, and felt that they could, that the strategies we were introducing and the approach was going to be effective. So I guess it was very early on, we had uh, patient family advisors and they were part of our regular meetings. So when you went looking for those patient and family partners, where, where did you find them? So did you put out a broad call or were there some existing collaborators sort of within the health system already you were able to draw on? 
Well, it was, uh, we, we had a meeting, we were all saying, I mean, I knew we had had, for example, a couple of inpatients who had just recently gone through rehabilitation. And we have a question on our question, exit questionnaire, would you be willing to be contacted um, to be a patient family advisor or to provide input? So we, we did uh, one individual that way. Um, we also had had, um, you know, a few outbreaks. We had a lot of staff who had experienced um, COVID and they were very vocal about looking at resources. So while they had been, they are employees of the health system, they also were experiencing COVID and really wanted to look at strategies. Uh, we also have mechanisms in Nova Scotia Health in which to, um, to reach out to patient family advisors. I think um, it takes quite a bit of diligence and time to find, go through the process. And we were really, um, looking to work quickly. I think we had we had a very high expectation placed upon us that in you know a matter of weeks we were going to have a full proposal done with what we wanted and how we wanted to do it and we wanted to implement it sooner than later. So we we reached out to individuals who we knew had expressed some interest, had conversations about them about what the expectations was in terms of what we were looking for and what we needed and were they able to meet that. So there's there's a negotiation and there's a there's getting clear about what the ask is. Sometimes people feel like, oh, we just need a patient family advisor, but what is it? You know, both sides need to be clear. The, the committee or the organization or the work group needs to be very clear about what role does that patient family advisor have. And the individual who's going to be committing time and energy and may not be feeling well need to understand what the expectations are of them. Um, so there were conversations. I was not one of those individuals who had that conversation. Uh, in one of my cases, it was my manager who knew the patient very well, had the, had, had the relationship and approached them about uh, providing feedback and vice versa, the same with our other uh, patient family advisors. Then there is a process. There is a, there is a process to ensure that our patient and family advisors are protected within the organization and, and go through confidentiality and lots of different mechanisms. We also were doing a lot of reaching out to patients in, in various ways. There was a lot of communication going on. Are you experiencing symptoms um, or have you got COVID? So there was the ability to reach out um, at that time to, to people who had it that maybe they want to be a patient family advisor. Now, I, again, I think it was a pretty chaotic time. We were in a wave at that time and it was trying to manage healthcare. It's kind of like flying the plane and uh, changing the engine, developing a post-COVID pathway and trying to get as much engagement and collaboration with all kinds of folks um, in a very short period of time. So ours were probably not done by the usual methods, but it was uh, a certainly a reach out. And I think the same principles um, were absolutely in effect. And it was being really clear about how we wanted to work, get our work done with that engagement and how um, those individuals, um, what the expectation and what the commitment was for them. Because we were meeting weekly, that was a big commitment for individuals. I, I know other parts of my role, uh, we have patient family advisors and it might be once a month or it might be every two months. And that's a different commitment than being part of something that there is a lot of literature and there's a lot of emails happening in between meetings. And then when we're meeting, being prepared to answer and to talk about the patient feedback specifically. And outside of our steering committee, which is um, we had two patient family advisors on, we did have patient uh, our patient family advisors involved in many aspects. We had a website. So we have a, a website was one of the first things we did. We had a lot of clinicians who um, would be considered, you know, experts in their areas. Uh, and then we had IPPNL, um, Interprofessional Practice and Learning, helping us with, um, you know, uh, the practice pieces. And then we had research, innovation and discovery um, helping us with lit reviews. So we were trying to pull in so much information 
and developing what we felt was a user-friendly website. So someone could be at home and saying, I'm having a symptom with this. Can I find it? And what's some help? And really looking at the self-management approach. We had a lot of feedback from our patient family advisors, and that really did help shape how the website looks, how you access information, what the information looks like, how much is on there. So, I mean, it, it may seem small, but it's huge. It actually has a, it, it plays a very significant role in our um, strategy. So we want people to be able to go to something on a, on a website, you know, after hours, um, you know, in the middle of the night or they wake up and they want to be able to go on and access that information that it's there. So the presentation, the information on how it's, uh, how it works, it was really driven by our patient family advisors. And we did that with every step of our process. Um, so the time, I guess I'm getting got to the time commitment, wasn't just the meetings, was all the feedback that some of these subgroups wanted that um, engagement, discussion uh, on how we could get their feedback to make sure that we were really developing something that worked for those that had uh, long COVID. An example is um, we had this idea that we wanted to call every single person in Nova Scotia who had COVID three months or more after they've had it. And it was a check-in call. It was a it was kind of a customer service call to uh, basically say, you know, um, you know, we understand you've had COVID. We had ability to get the list. Just checking in to see how you're doing. And even that screening call, how we devised the question, how we engaged our patient family advisors were part of developing that process. And then we actually had, if for those that were experiencing lots of symptoms or, you know, in, with, with post-COVID, our navigator called the individuals. So that's a lot of people. We're talking hundreds and we're talking thousands of people. We're talking hundreds of people. We could keep that up until Omicron came and then we've, we've changed, shifted strategies. Um, but even the tool that we used to go through with the questions, we, our patient family advisors were kind of our first people to trial it and give us feedback on how it was developed, how the sequencing of questions, you know, if we weren't being clear about something, you know, being clear. Um, and so really we pivoted at all times with the feedback that we had from our patient family advisors. They were absolutely instrumental in terms of shaping our strategy. And did they shape some of the, the process pieces as well as the content uh, pieces? Yes, good question. One of our patient and family advisors, actually two of them, were part of um, a Facebook group. So we knew what was happening Canada-wide and Atlantic Canada-wide is that people were coming together, right? So there was there was definitely a mechanism. And it wasn't about trying to recreate that. We wanted to be able to tap into that energy and that knowledge and that experience so that that could help shape our process on what was needed. And we knew through... Uh, I guess that kind of network, that feedback that me that fed into us, that drove our process, right? And I think COVID drove it is a little bit as well, because obviously in healthcare has shifted considerably. I mean, whereas before everything was in person, so much of it's virtual. And I think vir the virtual mechanism of, of that we, I guess, pivoted in, in COVID has reshaped kind of healthcare, but was really beneficial to people who had experienced long COVID because their energy was low, they weren't feeling well, and it gave them an ability to network and come together um, as a group, which was so powerful. And I, I think that experience, that information, and I guess what they needed. I mean, we, we wanted to create something that that felt we felt people needed, not something that we felt as experts that we would, would be creating. And I think that is that is the power of working collaboratively, um, is developing something together. And I think all of us, you know, when we kind of finished up our, our I guess, our project piece of design, we all felt that feeling that we were all part of something um, and that we co-created um, something together. 
And um, that is that is something you don't always feel. Um, so I think in this experience, it was a, it was a pretty incredible experience in a time that was very challenging in healthcare for healthcare providers, as well as all of the thousands of people who had had COVID. So, um, you know, it's a kind of a wonderful, powerful um, experience to know that we were collaborative and we were trying to just in time bring in evidence, experiences, and I guess what we were able to provide to create something. Um, and it's still being changed. The team that is uh, kind of the gateway into the post-COVID programming, they a lot of it has stayed virtually to be able to reach provincially and to reach um, people in, in places where they might not be able to get into a car and be able to come to an appointment. Um, so it has been very much from the feedback from those that have had long COVID and their symptoms to help shape where and how we do our programming. And that virtual piece, I'm curious too, if that sort of affected the ability of the patient collaborators to be involved as well in ways that perhaps wouldn't have been feasible if you'd been meeting every week in a conference room somewhere sort of thing. Absolutely. I, I think I think that would say for all of us, I mean, I, and, I, and I think if you're feeling not well, so to get up, get, get dressed, have a shower, get in your car, and then drive to um, you know a meeting and getting into a meeting room and parking, that, that is a barrier. I mean, that is a barrier. And many of us worked in different parts of the zone and in the province. And what was really cool was we could be anywhere and we could all be connecting. And at one point we were planning this through the summer and some of us were on vacation, but we could link in if we needed to. And, and also I think there were times when um, our patient family advisors weren't feeling that well, that they, they would say, I'm, I'm not feeling well today, but I'm here today. Um, and it's also being you know respectful to understanding where everybody's at. And, I, and I'm always very aware that our patient family advisors are, they're coming with their experience of something, whether whatever diagnosis, whatever disability, whatever health care experience they have. And that may not always be in their favor every day. You know, they wake up some days and they're very tired, um, but they really want to be part of this work. And being virtual makes a big difference in how that can happen, for sure. Absolutely. So I, I think it set up a, a, a better playing field and a better uh, opportunity for engagement, for sure. So yeah, to build on that in terms of, you know, thinking thinking ahead to the next time, hopefully it will be something that we're creating under you know, slightly less time pressure and just pressure pressure. Um, but I'm wondering what sort of you're taking forward from this experience, how you would approach you know, developing a sort of similar program differently in the future. You know, how, how has this experience shifted how you approach, you know, sort of program development or you know, care pathways, those sorts of things? So I think uh, huge, actually. I think uh, it is interesting because I think we've had it in our uh, in our directives for, for example, quality teams that we will have patient uh, family advisors. And I think teams struggle with how that might happen. I think the speed of how we had to engage for the post-COVID actually took away a lot of the barriers that seem to be in place. You know, oh, we have to do this, or maybe we need to do this, or maybe we have to put it up broadly for, you know, two months to make sure we give everybody a fair chance to do it. So sometimes when you overthink things, it actually becomes a barrier and you don't actually make any gains in moving it forward. So wearing another hat that I have, um, I we have a quite a, um, a quality structure for our tertiary rehab program. And we have now got we have two patient family advisors on our committee. And 
And again, not just having them on the committee, but having them engaged for other things. And just before I came in, actually, one of our patient and family advisors was here for an appointment and just dropped by my office um, and uh, had a question for me about a piece of equipment because he he said it's not great. So he, he, you know, this particular, he wants to improve things. He wants things to be there. And I, um, it, it actually has just been an awakening for me about how it can change how we do things and um, and together, you know. So what was it about that piece of equipment? Um, you know, just want to, you know, and, and we had a little hallway conversation just literally before I walked into this room. So it is about, it's opening your doors and understanding that this is our system. It's it's everybody's, it's the public system. And I know I believe that I'm here as a, as a facilitator to try and do that and, and having patient uh, family advisors uh, are absolutely critical. So I think I wouldn't overthink it in the future. And I think just um, really setting it as a standard, it's not up for discussion. And uh, and I think there's some fear in what might happen or who might, you know, if there's one person who doesn't like healthcare and they're on the committee, what would that happen? And I'm like, well, what would happen? You know, I guess we wouldn't find out unless we had them there. So it is about having the conversation and trusting the process. Uh, I think we were working very quickly and, and I think that we had a lot of trust and respect for each other's. And I think that that did carry us through very easily and um, just really encouraging with my teams to really trust the process. And we do have experts in our organization um, who can help teams onboard and help facilitate that process. I think we've gotten better at it as an organization. I think we said, you know, in the past, you, you know, everybody must have this, but it's a big step. There's a big gap in between. Um, you know, you know, you need to be comfortable. You need to feel like people feel comfortable. You need people to uh, feel welcome. You need people to be orientated. We use a lot of language in healthcare. So when you're sitting around and you're using acronyms and speaking in sometimes healthcare speak, you know, they're looking at us going, what are you talking about? And it just helps in, in thinking you're right. What are we talking about? So let's rephrase that, reframe it. And I, I think it it keeps us um, very focused that our, our job, our number one job in healthcare is to create an improved, wonderful healthcare experience for all patients, regardless of what program or service we have. So I, I, I do feel that my experience on the COVID, you know, development has been been a catalyst to how I do things in my portfolio and, and our expectations about how we move forward into things. I know Nova Scotia Health has a kind of a core committee group of, of uh, patient family advisors, so they're generic. So now we don't always have to have, um, you know, a specific one for a team. Uh, you can actually go with your, let's say you have a handout on self-management and you want that group to review it from their lens, a variety, it's a very diverse lens, it can go through that group. And I think that's a great strategy. I think it might help warm up teams to understanding the value and the impact of having um, patient family advisors review and look at things. So I think finding ways to get teams to that point is really important. And in healthcare, particularly the last two years, it's been challenging, right? So I, I always say, I think we did it well. I think we could do it better. I think there's lots of things I reflect on and how we could have done it better. But I think it was a really important, we wouldn't be where we are today without that engagement, for sure. So just as we're starting to, to come to a close in the uh, conversation, I'm wondering you know, if there's anything that surprised you uh, during the process of developing that uh, long COVID strategy and the ways that, uh, you know, either in particular feedback that the uh, patient advisors had or just sort of how things happened because of their involvement? I think it was easier than what I was anticipating. 
And I and I think that um, you know I often it's often this thing is well it has to be like this. And I think we just found where we were all we, we were all kind of the same. You know, you know everybody was creating a future that nobody knew what it really was, right? So we were developing it together. And I think one of the things I was taken back how trusting and how um, engaged we worked all together uh, very quickly. And I do consider it a, a first team. I think. One of the reflections is we use a lot of language. We move very quickly. We don't often explain why we are doing things in healthcare. And I think that might be actually translated on a whole lot of different levels. And I think sometimes we need to take a step back and just pause and think about what are what are we here for? What are we doing? And how do patient family advisors help us move forward with um, you know designing services that are for them? So it, uh, I think it was easier. I think that would be. I, I, I was expecting it to be more complicated, and it was. It, it just felt good. Felt great. Terrific. Well, I think that that's a lovely segue into the question we tend to use to wrap up the conversation. So, asking, you know, what can make that sort of collaboration process complicated for you? And so, maybe in your case, what were you anticipating or worried about would make it complicated, or what did maybe some of your colleagues worry about in terms of complications that, you know, in this case, didn't uh, in fact manifest. Well, I think uh, being virtual. So I think a lot of, you know, traditionally, if it's been five years ago, we require people to come into rooms. And I think we've proven that a lot of things can be virtual. Like take this recording, for example. We're all in different places and yet we're doing this. That's pretty fantastic, really. Um, so I think that uh, the virtual capacity and, and virtual can be meaningful. I think a lot of times in the past, people have thought, well, virtual is kind of second rate. And actually virtual can be first rate in many cases. So I think that that uh, was an enabler and um, was not, it didn't, didn't really get in the way. I think schedules, um, you know, scheduling is always hard when you have a lot of people collaborating. And uh, I think being respectful and cognizant to people who might be working and want to be a patient family advisor, a lot of the times we do things during the day, that was not an issue for our group at points in time, but I do know that can be. And how do teams work around that and work together with what what's mutually works for both? Um, language, I think you know, uh, language is something that we always have to be careful of. We do speak a lot of healthcare ease, and I think that that is not easy for being welcoming to um, to a patient family advisor who you know is not understanding the language that we're speaking. And certainly, we we have to be adaptable. I think one of the things we talked about recently at a steering committee was the remuneration or how do we acknowledge and recognize the incredible contribution that a patient family advisor brings, but how do we do that as a health system? And we've actually been asking around and we probably have a lot more work to do along those lines. And I would say that that is a takeaway that we've all been reflecting on a lot. As we engage patient family advisors, how do we acknowledge them? How do we compensate them in some cases, like you know, for parking? I mean, I think there's some more guidelines out now than there used to be. Um, but I do think that that's something that we definitely need. If we want momentum, we kind of have to think about that a little bit more. And I think sometimes people don't want anything and they're not expecting anything, but I think recognizing people um, is really important. And uh, we're actually thinking about a way right now of how we would recognize those that supported us through the last year. Terrific. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk through the experience that uh, you had. I think sometimes that either there's those sorts of concerns around uh, patient engagement that act as barriers or that it's done sort of, as you mentioned at the beginning, that it's sort of a checklist or just, okay, we had the person there and that's enough sort of thing. But I think, you know, your experience demonstrates 
both uh, the incredible range of benefits that you get in terms of outcomes from that involvement, but also how to do it in ways that are meaningful for everyone involved, including those uh, patient and family advisors. So I really appreciate you sharing that uh, with us as an example, as well as you sharing your reflections and learnings from that. And uh, hopefully this helps to foster more of that really effective and again, meaningful engagement throughout the healthcare system. So thank you so much for your time. I've really, I've enjoyed this conversation and I hope that uh, the listening audience does as well. Um, I should also thank, of course, the production support that uh, we receive from Lisbeth Vithof Nielsen, Krista Mleszko Scary, and the audio and video production team at Dalhousie Med IT. We owe thanks to Ben Caps for our theme music, and of course, thanks to those in the audience for listening. Please feel free to contact Enshen through our website with any feedback that you have, including ideas for future episodes. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>